0: Welcome to the Morbid Museum Podcast. I'm Luke Boyd.
1: I'm Katie Mead.
0: Today's episode, we are delighted to have a special guest, John Ferry. Ferry is the principal and owner of his own company, John's Bones, which sells antique skeletal medicinal specimens. The mission of John's Bones is to make skeletal remains available for educational use. Ferry's company rose to fame online through a series of videos published on TikTok, which reignited the debate about the ethics of the sale of human remains. In a studio space in Bushwick, Brooklyn, Ferry's stock, which includes skulls, spines, and full skeletons, can be seen by interested visitors or examined by potential buyers. John Ferry, welcome to the pod.
1: Hi.
2: Thank you so much for having me on. Thank
0: you for being with us.
2: This is such a Beyond
1: thrilled to have you with us today.
2: Yeah, I can't wait to talk about bones.
1: Let's do it. (laughs) Yes.
0: So, John, can you tell us how you first became interested in the study of bones?
2: Well, actually, that's always an interesting question. And finding a way to represent it in short form has always been a challenge for me. (laughs) But the true story, now that I actually have the ability to talk about it, was There was a lot of sequential events in my life that kind of led to a nexus where I was like, this is what I want to do. When I was 13 years old, this is the most common story, my father gave me a mouse skeleton. Mm. And instead of it being creepy, dark, weird, he said, look at it from an academic and a scientific standpoint. He had actually skeletonized this mouse for the Boy Scouts at a science fair he was doing when he was a kid. So he wanted to ignite my curiosity and passion. So he had gifted it to me. I love Um, that. Thank you. And then later on, I actually have a torso tattooed on the side of my ribs that I had gotten done at 15 years old. So from there, (laughs) my curiosity on the imagery and the skeletal structure began to flourish. And then later, when I was 17, I wanted to do a figure study of a rat skeleton that my science department actually had. So I had submitted a proposal to them saying, hey, is it okay if I use this as a figure study for my art class? Mm. And they said, no, you cannot use it. <laughs> if you break it, we can't afford another one. That rat skeleton cost $2,000. Oh, what? Yeah. Man. What so,
1: what year was it from? I could oh, go to the was, su- the sewer right now and go get you a shit ton of rat skeletons.
2: Well, <laughs> and they're more common in New York City than they were in Indiana at the time. Oh,
1: well,
2: that's So, <laughs> the rare elusive northeastern rat. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And then um later my cheerleading coach was a health, also a health science teacher and she had a human spine in her mm. classroom and I asked Miss Nicolini uh, can I look at this spine or can I, can I uh, check it out? And she said, no, it's the only model we have. So if you break it, the school can't afford another one. So there, this pattern of inaccessibility started yeah. to, become right. uh, apparent where I was trying to get access to osteology or before I even knew what that term was, which is the study of bone, um, I had a lot of roadblocks that came up that stopped me from learning. And then after that, and I, I argue that vendetta of not being able to have that spine might have led to the spine wall, Who Right, sure. Um, <laughs> but then later on the last kind of thing that led me to it was I, I was fascinated by the company Skulls Unlimited. Uh, Jay was the founder, he started the company in 1983 and was someone I looked up to when I first started my practice. And they were based in Oklahoma. And logistically, I was in Indiana and later moved to New York City. So there was just a logistical issue when it came to eventually working at that practice. So by that point, when I moved to New York City in 2018, I had already been working with animal skeletons on my own, where I took it on myself to actually get these pieces and learn the anatomy uh, myself. But that's what actually got me into bones was my pure fascination of it from a scientific standpoint and not being able to get any access to bones. So I took it upon myself to start John's bones.
1: Wow, that's really incredible. And it was scientific, but it also sounds like the artistry of it as well, like the composition of a skeletal structure interests you a lot.
2: Yeah, and there's so many things that uh, we all take for granted. Just Nowadays, being a little bit more experienced in my career, I can immediately tell you how the skeletal structure should be formed where every single piece should go. But I looked back at some of my early work and it was bad. There were like <laughs> tibia, tibia where, where femur should go. I didn't understand the composition of the animal at all. This was actually a, goat or a deer skeleton I had done my sophomore year of high school. Oh. And if you know anything about a deer, <laughs> this is not what they I should. Don't know
1: like. what that is. about those
0: legs? I'm not sure about
2: those we'll legs. Love, we'll legs. make
1: sure we post that on our Instagram because legs were not
2: there. That's like so, a, chup-
1: a chupacabra or something. I don't know what that
2: was. So my work went from that to eventually this. Wow. Quite the upgrade. So it really improved over the years. But yeah. these are all things that people just take for granted is not everyone has access to bones and osteology. And it was actually from books and manuals and other mentors that I was able to find. I was able to improve my knowledge.
1: So so the reasoning then, I, I I guess this is what inspired you to start selling bones is because there seemed to be this lack of a market and people like you who have a clear and obvious interest? No one's really doing what you're doing.
2: I think it was a, a perfect storm. If you really look at it historically, I had started November 26, 2018. I was in a college dorm, no bigger than the room I'm in now, with three guys.
1: No oh, God. Um, I had a
2: little. I had a little tiny desk, um, which I had filled with skeletons at that point, and then my bunk bed, <laughs> uh, and it i the reason i started selling came from the pure logistical fact that i did not have enough space to keep everything in new york city right no
1: way so for i no had reason. only
2: i hadn't originally planned to sell any of the pieces but i didn't have enough space so i said okay i'm doing these articulations cuz originally johns bones started as an articulation company where i used to do animal bones for clients mm. and museums okay so i said okay I have these pieces, I'm doing a lot of work with them, and I wanna share it to the world. I wanna share it to people online, that way more people can learn from my process and maybe can become inspired. Mm-hmm. And what what should I call it? So my college roommate was like, well, why don't you call it John's Bones? And I was like, no, that's so stupid. Like, that's a dumb name. And he was like, <laughs> but, but they're your bones. <laughs> and so it was born. And
1: thus it came to be.
0: I so your
2: inability it. to hoard is what led you to... <laughs> <laughs> I f- his, we talked about hoarding in a previous space. Episode. <laughs> All he lacked was it. the
1: space to hoard.
2: I find yeah, logistical, it. unable to hoard. Yeah, with collectors, I oftentimes feel like there's such an emphasis of hoarding where they go, I will never part ways with this. I will keep this skull till the day I die.
1: Oh, John, and do not I, even get me started. I, this is I, such I a was, thing on this podcast.
2: <laughs> I don't believe in hoarding. And actually, everything we have is publicly available for purchase for universities and working professionals. Mm -hmm. So I actually sold my first ever skull I purchased, which is considered a very taboo thing, because usually your first skull is very sentimental for collectors. It's your
1: baby. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And um, I decided, you know, these aren't my pieces. I, I have no right to them. I think everybody should have access to it. So I actually I let it go. And I wanted to put my money where my mouth is.
0: That's amazing. So the name of the company is kind of a fun play because they're John's bones, but you're not so attached to them that you can't part with them for the betterment of the intellectual property of the world. You know, the sort of yeah. body of knowledge.
2: If you were oh, the body of knowledge, okay.
1: Oh, look <laughs> I, at you! Look at you!
2: I yeah. talked That's to cool. my friend Grace Adamchek uh, my freshman year, and I said, "Grace, do you think there would be ever be a day where I can afford to have a full skeleton?" and that was four years ago. So if you really look at how the business has culminated over the last four years, I never thought that I'd be able to have such a position and such an advocacy for these pieces.
1: And how many full skeletons do you have now?
2: We've had total 29. I Um, mean, come
1: on! Currently
2: at the showroom, we have nine on display. We keep the best for ourselves. (laughs) (laughs)
1: i mean that's
0: fair it's handy to have one around that's all i can say i can imagine of course um
1: but it is it's a major um (laughs) forgive forgive my pun a bone of contention for us where (laughs) (laughs) thanks uh where um in many of our episodes we always want to share places where our listeners can go look at things and find things and unfortunately yeah private collectors take some of the coolest stuff and do not let anyone look at it. And it's a complete and utter crime. And I love that that's not what you're about. That's so great to hear.
2: I think there's a strong dichotomy for collectors. I think that's kind of the differentiation that I always make between John's Bones and private collectors is collectors, John's uh, John's Bones is not, it's our collection, but collectors collect for personal reasons. Mm -hmm. John's Bones, the showroom is for the betterment of education engaging public awareness and to find a solution for these pieces. So we have a very specific framework that we follow where a collector might collect for personal reasons, educational reasons, right. symbolic reasons, and that really falls within, for us, that category. So some collectors hoard, as you've described, and other collectors um, also enjoy making their collections public.
1: Yeah, which we
0: love. That's great. So. John, you talk about how all your life you're chasing osteological resources and being denied, and you are a proponent of osteology, but it's true that your studies are taking you in a different direction, right, from traditional osteology or medical research.
2: Yeah, no, exactly. I'm classically trained in product design, but over the course of my career, I've always found that there were a lot of people that shared similar beliefs to what I had found. We have gotten thousands of DMs from individuals all over the country saying, Hey, I just want to let you know that I'm a freshman in medical school. Chunk. Sorry, my cat is <laughs> scratching a box right now. Um, <laughs> but I was inspired and I actually applied to study osteology or forensic anthropology um, because of your practice. So, That's because amazing. of hundreds of DMs that we've gotten over the course of TikTok and other videos that we put out. But hearing that we've been able to inspire people to get into the field is more humbling than I can ever imagine. I believe that everybody has the right to study bones. I think the problem with labels is when you say you're not a forensic anthropologist, you're not a doctor, so you Mm. can't have the right to these pieces. This is where you create a cycle of misinformation and uneducation within the general public. So I advocate that everybody has the right to study osteology, as long as it's in a respectful and an insightful context.
0: I think that's brilliant. And I really wanted to highlight that because that is something I think Katie and I would both agree in, in terms of museums and history. There is also gatekeeping about who's an official historian or who has the right to claim the mantle of a museum professional. doesn't matter if you are an actor or a waiter and you find yourself in a museum education job, you become a museum educator. You have all the Mm -hmm. right things. Anybody can do it. Sure, they need training, whether it's on the job or at the academy. And isn't it amazing that you're a great ambassador for osteology coming from your design multidisciplinary sort of approach? I think it's just, you know, very commendable.
1: And I'm I personally think... biased because <laughs> Luke, Luke and I have very similar backgrounds in that way. But I think it makes it kind of makes you better at what you do. The more variety you have in your background.
2: You know, and I, b- I believe, too, I've always been transparent about my background and what mm-hmm. I'm educated in professionally. I've never claimed to be a doctor. I've never claimed to be a trained osteologist. I've taken courses in forensic anthropology online. I've talked to a myriad of different universities, professors, and mentorships over the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. But um, I primarily claim that my panel of expertise comes from medical history and the studying of the collection. But I think that's something that always gets miscategorized when I talk is people say, oh, he's not an osteologist. And that's always been the point is I'm Mm -hmm. not an osteologist. And I still believe Mm -hmm. that everyone should have the right to study their own skeleton. That's great.
0: Yeah. So I want to paint a mental image for people. If you ever have a chance to visit the the studio space in Bushwick, where John's Bones is located, um, you would encounter glass cases containing many a skull and a spine wall, as it is famously referred to, where I believe over a hundred spines are on display. I believe we're at 110 now. So
1: cool looking.
0: And so yeah, from a design perspective and a museum perspective, it's very arresting and very interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think what many of our folks at home would be interested to know is, can you tell us about where the bones that are in your collection and that you sell, where do they come from? That's probably the number one question you get
2: asked, right? They come from the local cemetery down the road from me.
1: I knew it, I knew
2: it! I'm there with my assistant Igor, shovel in hand, the dead of night, you know, with a black cat howling in the background. No, all of the all of the pieces in the collection come inherited from individuals that typically had family members in the medical field. So typically when I answer that question, um, there's multiple frameworks that need to be taken into account. The simplest response is all of the pieces we get are inherited from individuals in the medical field. This is where John's bones gets the bones from. But if you wanna go a level deeper, it's similar to an onion and you really have to peel back the complexities of it. Mm -hmm. So like a very quick summary of it is we get them from retired medical professions such as physicians, doctors. If someone passes away, it is inherited. We purchase it from either a family or if a collector had purchased the skull, they had purchased it from a family. So at the end of the day, it always typically comes from a family. They got the skeleton from a medical supply company. And the medical supply company mm. oftentimes got their skeleton from another medical supply company. Mm. And then that medical supply company <laughs> got it from the original producer. And that's geographically related to where the company was located. And then from there, they had their own unique source of procurement, may that be just with their, where it is from its historical standpoint. So where you are in history dictated how they sourced it, but it's a very complex web, and that's what we're really trying to unravel at John's Bones is where the origins of these pieces come from.
0: Capitalist nesting doll. Jeez. (laughs) Honestly.
1: Yeah, Fine. and I mean, I guess you're you're able to get enough information on most of these specimens where you can age them. So you yeah. do have some sense of how long these bones have been in circulation, essentially.
2: We have a very good understanding of the lineage and the history behind these pieces. But That's great. Um, I'm actively learning. I'm actively retconning information. <laughs> um, it's always important not to speak in absolutes. We always say sure. presumed Adam Rooley. Um mm-hmm. We've had many times where more evidence had become available that we previously didn't have that changes our original hypothesis of the origins of a specific skeleton or model. Okay. So we always try to be as open and transparent when new um, discoveries emerge.
1: Yeah, because I guess there's always the curiosity around, you know, there's these companies you're talking about, and some of them don't actually produce medical specimens anymore. So I personally also don't know anything about this process. So I mean, how, how are these companies... How are they sourcing the remains? And what is that process for treating them for educational use? You know, how how are they maintained over time?
2: Yeah, so it, it really just depends on the broad history. Early on in the 1600s and 1700s, there were, um, it was popularized in a culture called the Resurrectionists. The Resurrectionists were a group of grave robbers primarily based in the UK and they were famous for stealing open graves and uh, Mm. giving the remains for medical science. So it had gotten so rampant and there was such a demand for bones in the 17 and 1600s that mausoleums and other iron barred cages started emerging to stop grave robbers. Yeah. So it was so rampant that eventually in the 17 and 1800s, primarily in the early 19th to 18th century, Governments started actually regulating what you could and couldn't do with um, individuals. So where you can get these bodies from and where you can properly source remains from. And as a response, companies started springing up to fuel this demand. Hmm. the the most the most commonly known sourcing of bones comes from India. Primarily, Calcutta was a main source. There was a group called the Brother and Sons, I believe that was a main supplier. And Reckness Limited was another main bone supplier. So, the way that I would explain it is each geographical region, as I said earlier, has their own way of sourcing. So, Mm. we have companies from, we have bones from the company Samso, and we had a forensic anthropologist look at them, and they appear to be European of origin, um, presumed. Mm. Uh, The company Clay Adams, which was based in New York City, we had a forensic anthropologist look at the ancestral profile of the skeleton and it appeared to be Caucasian. So based on the geographical place in which the company was located, they had their own policies on how you source the bones and what would be considered um, donation. But from court records, documents, it was all above board. It was all regulated. The issues that pop up when it comes to the medical bone trade is eventually once profit became the highest in demand, then you start to see huge injustices that take place, especially for individuals in marginalized communities and more caste systems, especially in India, that got affected. So for instance, if a medical supply company said, hey, if your loved one passes away, we will pay money for their body to donate it to medical science, oftentimes the families of those loved ones would donate the body uh, for financial compensation. So this ended up targeting uh, marginalized communities lower, usually individuals of lower uh, social political status within the country. And then you started to see major injustices take place, especially during uh, British colonial rule. Mm. But one thing I wanted to point out was, I believe in 1977, I have to go check back on uh, the original journal I read. India had actually banned exportation of human remains for universities. And really? yes, and there was so much public backlash amongst the local communities, and so many people were angry, they actually reinstated it. And it <laughs> wasn't until finally 1984, um, the trade was subsequently banned. So according to court records and legislation that I found at the time, the trade still happens. They just no longer can export remains. So that subsequently ended the, the c- commercial large-scale bone trade as we know it today. So interesting. So that, that's one example from one mm. country. And what I always stress to anyone listening is uh, this was at the height from around the 50s to the to the, around the 80s. But the okay. bone trade lasted for around 100 years. So the UK has completely different laws on sourcing than let's say India, so, so did the US. So really to answer that question, you have to look really at the specific company you're focused on, focusing on researching on and then specifically what period they existed in. Mm-hmm. But that was one example. And with that, um, there's such a long and complex history, especially with the sourcing of remains. So now we wanna work towards having a conversation about it hearing people's feedback, hearing members of the general public and how they feel, and then really finding a viable solution of what to do with these pieces.
1: Right. Yeah. And the companies, is it that they will tag the specimen themselves and that's how you still are able to know that it's what company it came from originally?
2: Correct. Okay. So they are medical, medical markings and there are specific stickers that can be traced back to some companies. So for instance, here, this was an original label from the company Carolina Biological Supply. And as you can see, it's one bad day away from falling off. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the surviving <laughs> labels don't exist on these skeletons. And that's mm-hmm. why dating the provenance is so hard.
1: Yeah, for sure. And that's where this can get sticky and difficult yes. to know the level of ethical sourcing, I, I suppose, right? Yes, of course.
0: Yeah, it sounds like we're getting into some of the tricky legal sort of stuff surrounding this, which is endlessly fascinating. And, um, you know, there's been a fair amount of, you know, criticism or questions, you know, lobbed, you know, uh, John, at, at your endeavors here. And... As we know, there is no statute um, on the books that bars the sale of human bones in the United States, though I believe you have difficulty transporting or selling to some states individually, shipping and things
1: like that. It's about mail, right?
2: So there are laws on human remains. There are actually a lot of laws on human remains, so we're careful to follow all federal and state regulations that exist. For instance, uh, D.C. has a transplantation law, so if I were to sell you, Luke, a femur, and you were to cut your leg open and insert that femur into your leg, um, technically that would be illegal. So that law does mention bones um, for mm. the purpose of transplantation. Mm-hmm. So It also sounds
1: there, like a really bad idea. <laughs> well, it's,
2: it's impossible to happen. Oh, just... no. One, one thing I wanted to stress is there are laws that exist. Um, NAGPRA is another very important law that needs to be followed. It's uh, the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, mm-hmm. I'm butchering it. But that states that any Native American remains is federally illegal.
1: OK, so that so was a, that was a big yes. question I had yes. in terms of, you know, so th- obviously upsetting sites in this country specifically yes. and, and the, the horrible history around that. So that's yes. that's
2: great. So. There is um, there are laws that are Senator around protecting that, and I think that that's absolutely amazing. And with that also, there's there's no federal regulation against the ownership, sale, and possession of human osteology, mm-hmm. but there are state regulations. So the three states mm-hmm. with provisions on that: is Louisiana, Georgia, and Tennessee. Georgia and Tennessee, it is legal to own human bones, but they cannot leave or cross state lines. Louisiana is the only state that bans it outright. Now. I am not a lawyer and Mm -hmm. that is not legal advice. I always recommend you check with your own state representative or lawyer for the laws. But from what I understand, this is my general understanding of how the scope of the law works. Right.
0: And I think for many of us, we would never think about encountering these legal tricky matters. But to your point, mm-hmm. if your grandfather was a dentist or a doctor, you may find yourself in possession of a specimen or something Absolutely. like that. That is, you know, something that not most folks would confront normally. So yeah. I think, you know, in the conversation, there's sort of three different solutions that are offered up, donating them, repatriating them, returning them to whomever they belong to, and disposing of them. And you sort yeah. of started to unpeel that for us. Can you explain what's what's loaded in those
2: solutions? Yes. Well, on that, um, firstly, according to Scott Carnegie's The Red Market, there were over 60,000 skulls shipped to the U.S. and the U.K. alone in one year. So oh one thing I, yeah, one thing that was one year and that was nineteen eighty-three and oh, this lasted forever. The were that, they all for me? Possibly. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you all if you know where they all went, let me know. I'll let you know. I'll never tell. That was, tell. <laughs> that that was one a lot. year. So I wanted to really present the scale in which this industry took place and how many are out there. So with that people always say the three major things that we hear from the general public is oh well i think the skull should just be put to rest you know let the skull rest that's a huge it's a very western ideal where Mm -hmm. juxtapose that to let's say like buddhist cultures which has more of an emphasis on reincarnation or other Mm -hmm. cultures that have an emphasis on celebration americans have a process of grieving and the culture of putting a loved one to rest so they say oh Give the skeleton rest, bury it. That leads to a lot of problems. I had an open house and ran into five mortuary technicians. And they all were like, Nope, super illegal. Improper disposal mm. of human remains is a crime.
1: They're actually heavy yeah. laws
2: on just dumping your relatives' ashes wherever you want, because uh, it's a it's a health violation. So being expecting the context and the scale in which this industry took place. Uh, what are we supposed to do? Have a giant pit in every state where you just throw your skull yeah. in at the end of the month, um, <laughs> like a three
1: it's, like, <laughs> yeah, it's,
2: it's not viable. It's not able to be completed at that scale. And not only that too, but I see that as destroying pieces of medical history. Um, mm-hmm. for one's personal perspective, if we look at the intentionality of the skull, this was someone that, uh, according to historical records, would have, looking at the intentionality of it, donated their bodies to medical science. Um, if then were you for you to say and make that decision saying, Well, you're not going to have that anymore, we're going to destroy the remains, mm. it, I feel as if, personally, this is my own personal opinion, that it's disrespectful to the individual themselves,
1: their wishes. The,
2: yes. The next common one is repatriation. Repatriation is the act of returning remains to the original family of origin if it could be tracked. The issue with that is HIPAA laws are more modern, but the skull is always kept anonymous. The individual's identity was not medically relevant. Mm. So out of respect for the individual, it was just categorized as a medical skull. We looked at it from an objective perspective. Wow. So from that, there's no way of identifying the individual's origins
0: Wow. the only
2: way you could is theoretically drilling into the teeth that would be the only surviving part of dna that would be left that could be sampled so from there it's extremely cost prohibitive and expensive to do and outside of other collections such as the edward morton collection which is a rather famous osteological collection that's going through the process of repatriation currently um, these pieces are all anonymous Mm. And there's also spiritual and symbolic consequences that have to be taken into account. For instance, for Buddhists, it's more about a cycle of reincarnation, especially within the context, let's say, let's use India as an example, the belief system is different. So for people to just be handed their relative skull that they might or might not have known about might be primarily traumatizing. You know, I would argue, do you know your great, great grandfather. Anything about them, their name.
0: I I know their names. That's some basic information. I know where they are. I I wouldn't want his head. I wouldn't want his head.
2: Right. So I argue I'm closer with my friends than I ever would a distant relative I know nothing of. Mm-hmm. So being able to return um, a piece, it sounds very good in principle, but it's unrealistic for thousands and thousands of skulls. And yeah. that doesn't even take into account of who is managing this repatriation program. Right. The, uh, the
1: financial backing yeah. that would be required alone.
2: People seem, people always like to make simple solutions for complex mm-hmm. problems. And I I think it's a very Herculean wicked problem. So we do it a step at a time. And until technology gets to the point where we are able to figure out, pinpoint the individual's identity, we want to work on the best viable solutions that we have with our current technology. Um, And the last one, and actually the best one, and I advocate for this a lot, if an individual wants to part ways with a skeleton, is donation. Um, Donation is absolutely the best way to go find a local medical museum that can take it. Unfortunately, there are not many in the US that are equipped to handle human remains, but they are out there. And for Mm -hmm. anyone that's listening, I highly advocate first and foremost for the pieces to go back to a museum, if that's possible. Mm -hmm. Um, We currently had a piece, uh, it was a tibia and fibula come in with a gunshot wound. And it was estimated, presumed, that the piece was from the Civil War. And I specialize in medical history from around 1850 to modern times. So that fell out of the purview of my expertise. So mm-hmm. I thought it belonged um, at a museum. So I'm friends with a curator there, and even with a foot in the door, it took between seven to nine months to fill out paperwork to get the piece officially donated.
1: Wow! So to
2: expect an American to come into to come have come into a skull to immediately find a museum go through the bureaucracy of submitting the paperwork, the forms, and if they don't even have information on it, that could also hinder their ability to donate it. Mm-hmm. Uh, to get approved and, and then give the piece in is very hard. And as long as there's an existing market that provides monetary incentives for these bones, most individuals are incentivized to sell it when why give away something for free when I can make money for it. So right. that leads to another slurry of issues and and, <laughs> and the buying and selling of bones have been happening for longer than I've been alive. So right. it's a market that exists. So the three main things is repatriation, donation, and burial. And they no. all have complex issues. Yeah. So the solution that we found is educators and working professionals are able to take the bones. So we have worked with a myriad of different universities over the last three to four years that are able to actually purchase these skulls to restock their anatomy departments. Oftentimes they're smaller universities that don't have as large of a teaching collection. So they think that they come to us to source. And this is a great thing. And it fulfills the original intentionality of the skull, which was for learning and understanding. So from there, it's our ideal client.
1: That's great. That was going to be a big question is, who is out there looking for this stuff? But that's wonderful. And I totally can empathize and understand the slow moving wheels of museums.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Uh, Yeah. we've, We've all had to uh, be victims of that in a variety of ways, not just on the curatorial or collections side of things. It's, right. you know, depending on what country you're talking about, their government funded, their nonprofits, their private institutions, and they all have funding issues for the most part. So, So that can make that process painfully slow. So I think at the end of the day, the fact that at least the goal is... These are going to be used for educational purposes is really, really important and really good to hear. Yeah. We
2: always emphasize these pieces aren't props. It's not for vanity. It's not for decoration. These were real human remains and they should be treated with the utmost respect and dignity as possible. And even within my own policies, we're always actively improving as we've gotten more funding in. We've moved from being able to have the the bones in open displays to being able to afford to have everything behind glass. So I'm actively also trying to improve my own practice and my own policies on how we treat these pieces to be the best that we can with them.
1: Yeah. Now, now you're becoming a conservationist as well. You're just <laughs> you're going through all these different schools.
2: <laughs> One day at a time. Yeah. Multi hyphenated. <laughs> One
1: career at a time. More like it. A- really.
0: And we talk a lot about collecting, you know, at at museums, not that Katie and I are are ever involved in collections processes. We're from museum education and interpretive perspectives. But uh, unless a museum is really young, they're really often not collecting things like this anymore. And especially for something like human remains, there's a million reasons why a museum would not want to do that for storage reasons, legal reasons, ethical reasons, you know, all those, you know, pitfalls. Accessioning
1: Um, anything is a huge pain. It's a huge task. It's a huge
0: task. And uh, it's just great that, you know, these specimens are going into active, you know, learning spaces and not into a case or into a vitrine or into a, you know, climate controlled, you know, space.
1: Yeah, that, and, that's what we said about the Faberge eggs. I have one yeah. in my bathroom just because I can. <laughs> and it's also
2: um, lightening the burden. Uh, there isn't any public program. There isn't any public Yeah. Uh, we're really trying to combat this. So we really act as an intermediary between clients trying to find a new home for these pieces.
1: It's amazing. Uh, You know,
2: because, you know, you got to think about it, a university can't just go to a random person in Mississippi or in Idaho to buy a skull, you know, unless it's actively uh, donated. And actually, interestingly Mm. enough, um, my favorite clients to work with are actually members of Search and Rescue. Really? fascinating how does that work so oftentimes this is where i can show the example so this is a human femur um oftentimes they prefer bones that are antique because they were cleaned differently but they would actually take the bone and train puppies the smell of human remains and that actually aids in search and rescue so most departments they don't have a standardized process of acquiring bones so it's on each individual um, search and rescue handler to source their own remains so they usually go to private companies such as uh john's bones so they buy the bones and for the fbi they need a 90 percent recovery rate in order to be certified Mm. but they actually have the the puppies become familiarized with the scent of human remains. Then they hide them out in the field and test the dog's ability to find them. And this actually aids with modern recovery and modern uh, rescue operations. Yeah. So we've sold to hundreds of handlers all over the U S uh, to try to aid in uh, body recovery, which That's is a real
1: incredible. thing. incredible, <laughs> And it's a, and it's a story that is very near and dear to uh, Luke and I, as I, I believe Luke probably told you, we met and worked at the 9-11 yeah, memorial. Wow. And so the, the rescue recovery story is an incredibly important and difficult part. And uh, we talk about the dogs there. We, when we worked there, we talked about the dogs a lot and uh, kind of what way- they went through emotionally as well, struggling yeah. to find remains. And so learning about their training process and that even those those bones get to have a second life is so, so amazing. I love it's really that. special. Yeah.
0: Also, those poor dog handlers, they have to do everything for these dogs. They have to like feed them, take care of them, buy them, buy their own bone oh, specimens. Oh, they
1: adore them. <laughs> Who are you kidding? It's a great trade off. It's You've a great deal. You've met but them. They're so they them work cute. Hard.
0: Yeah. Oh, they're amazing.
1: I remember,
2: that is um, amazing. it's very personalized too, especially with um, a lot of our handlers. So I think one of the, the dogs that we worked with was actually named Orion and Great name. Orion's in his fi- uh, the the runner up for the the SARS award could you vote for him um Aww. but oftentimes we we know the dogs we we meet uh we know the handlers so it's always um it's always such an eventful thing
1: That's so nice. I think you know for us as museum professionals and this is a sort of uh museum-based podcast you know mu- museums themselves have found value in collecting bones, obviously from animals, dinosaurs, whatever, um, but human remains as well. So what do you know about the history of that and sort of the collection side of things in terms of a curatorial perspective?
2: Well, it really depends. Um, I've studied a majority of medical collections all over the U.S., but more from forwarding our research so I've looked at it primarily from comparing known and unknown pieces. For instance, the Mütter collection has accessioned uh, remains that actually are documented. Uh Zeus, Vesture, Tremond, are, was it a skeleton articulator that they have known examples of? So I've looked at different medical collections more from a historical standpoint, comparing and contrasting what we know at our collection versus what the museum collection has. Mm. But outside of uh, procurement and sourcing, each museum is different and has mainly fallen out of the realm of what I focus on. For instance, it was a Joseph Muter. i I'm always, I'm probably gonna butcher it, but on the Muter collection was, he was a physician and the way that he sourced the, the bones it was interesting to say the least, especially the skull wall. Um, a lot of murder victims, a lot of a lot of things there. So that kind of falls out of the purview of for me was education and donation. So right. typically, I don't, I go don't go into those fields.
1: Museums right now are going through a huge, hopefully, <laughs> makeover in terms of their ethics in general. We talk about uh, re- repatriating items, colonializing mm-hmm. world has, exactly. led, yeah, has led to a great deal of theft and museums yep. are essentially treasure troves of theft. And mm-hmm. I think the same can be said for these kinds of specimens as well, that, you know, there, there comes a time when there is some accountability and conversations that need to be had. And like you said, it is with bones specifically, this is hard because who are these people what do you do with them Mm i think
2: what i what i'll say too in terms of you know the efficacy of museums is it's the conversation about accountability and what is possible for instance some of the collections there are living descendants that have been documented it can be tracked So there you have a different framework for instance than our collection where everything has remained anonymous and it's almost virtually impossible Mm-hmm. To Figure out the origins. But for some of the medical collections, it's better documented. And in yes. that case, if living descendants are still alive and want their family members to be returned, or if countries have explicitly asked for, uh, let's say, tribal skulls to be returned, mm-hmm. right. I believe that's a conversation that needs to be had.
1: Yeah, I think from from everything that I can see, the trends in, in museums, this is the the way things are finally starting to move.
2: It's a, it's a long baby steps. Um, it's, it's a long, steps. it's a long and complex uh, problem. For instance, yeah. uh, the Met, for example, has a lot of historic willed collections. Mm-hmm. So I think, like East Asian, or like there's the Asian exhibit, and then there are a lot of pieces in that collection that shouldn't be categorized as Asian but Mm -hmm. then that was willed that this needs to be in this exhibit, that was the um, (laughs) individual's last wishes, Mm -hmm. and the person passed away a hundred years ago, but according to their last wishes, it needs to be on display. So it isn't always as simple as just remove it or change the accession of it, because it gets very complex.
0: Right, existential (laughs) for a museum, if they lose something that's treasured and now their whole visitor experience is A draw,
1: yeah. Exactly.
0: Um, it's hugely complicated and the world has gotten a lot smaller since a lot of these museums were made when it was a luxury to have something appearing from another continent mm-hmm. in, or on, Fifth, on Fifth Avenue. Um, and the world's gotten more globalized and a lot of these countries that were pillaged have risen in terms of having their own museological approach and their own government structure that says we want these things back, whether it's the Elgin Marbles or something from South America. And yeah, so it's really interesting to be in the museum field right now, straddling that. But you're sort of in between those worlds in that you're yeah deal- your shop
1: is very fascinating in that way you you, you, have, you kind of ha- uh, can be a little more neutral almost on the topic because you're not in museums our, <laughs> um, we do our best to dealing apply with this.
2: we we do our best to apply the best ethical considerations that we can with the given information and resources that we work with For instance, we only work with medical bones here at John's Bones. There are three broad categories of human remains that could be seen in the U.S., and those are ossuary bones, uh, Mm. ossuary slash archaeological, tribal, and medical. So Mm. ossuary slash archaeological could be anything from the Paris catacombs, something from an excavation or a dig, anything uh, that could be seen in an open grave. Uh, Tribal skulls. Are categorized to name some, um, such as dyaks, asthmats, kampalas, naga skulls, and sure. uh, other headhunter cultures that have symbolic or spiritual practices around human remains and the decoration or spiritual worshiping of said remain. Um, and then the last category is medical bones, which were categorized by Clay Adams, Adam Ruley, Milliken, and Lolly. Auxeus uh, Treymon, Vasseur, Carolina Biological Supply uh, Denoyer Geppert my knowledge is a lot more extensive on medical bones but with that, we look You're at You're just the rattling skull. off
1: names and I'm like- <laughs> So impressive. Sure, <laughs> sure, okay, I we, guess.
2: <laughs> we look at the, well, Kampala skulls, for instance, are uh, monks that were sky buried, sky burials, where they would ornately decorate the skull with silver and oftentimes drink wine and eat cake off of it for spiritual practices. Wow. I um, want to
1: get into that
2: asthmatic and Kampala skulls, I believe they're head hunting cultures that would trophy hunt skulls and ornately decorate them as for their own spiritualistic practices. Mm. Wow. So within our own ethical considerations, technically within the U S it's all legal
1: mm. um,
2: because all bones are legal. Uh, we don't know the original intentionality of the individual. We right. don't know if they want to be displayed, We don't know if they want to be photographed. We don't know if they want to be studied. We don't know what the individual's last wishes are. So we choose not to work with any tribal remains or any archaeological slash ossuary remains. But looking at the intentionality of medical bones, it was the individual's last wishes according to history to be donated, to be studied, to be learned from, to be photographed. So this is why we feel comfortable working with medical bones in comparison to the other two categories. But I would say with a degree of confidence that around 60 to 70 percent of the market and sale of human remains in the U.S. is actually tribal slash ossuary slash archaeological. A very small percent of it actually being bought and sold are medical. Um, they're, they're They're far more common. And they oftentimes are le- are more inexpensive than medical remains. Ooh, mm, that's man.
1: a that gives me the ick.
2: The invisible <laughs> hand of the dollar, yeah, yeah, says all.
1: Now, your business is still is still fairly young. How long have you guys been running?
2: Officially incorporated November twenty six, two thousand nineteen.
1: Let's say I'm not. Obviously, this isn't legally binding. I want to give you my skeleton. <laughs> okay let's just say in theory have you <laughs> are you guys impossible
2: in the i will not take it <laughs> i don't want it either <laughs> i'm not here to add to the problem i'm here to solve the problem
1: that was okay great i was gonna say do you want people to say i'm i'm willing my loved one's skull to you or my bones to you you're trying to Eliminate. Things
2: (laughs) Things are always subject to change, um, depending on how the museum evolves in the future and the showroom evolves in the future. Um, But I will say, though, we get weird emails. (laughs) Uh, Oh, do you? I I can't imagine why. Absolutely. No disrespect for this one individual, but we had someone email us going, I want to be skeletonized, and Mm. I want to be strapped to a wheelchair Wearing my quarterback outfit from high school with my helmet on, and for every home game, I want to be wheeled onto the field as a skeleton supporting my team. Can you do this for me, John?
0: Oh, oh dear! And I was like,
2: <laughs> No, um, no, sir. No, no. I so can't. We, got it, we get a lot of emails like that. Um, it's really heartbreaking, actually, but I'm like deathly ill. I want to donate my body to science. You know, mm. can you skeletonize my body so future generations can learn from it? And, you know, in instances like that where it genuinely is a more sensitive topic, yeah. I would always advocate for a university program or institution yeah. that has body donation programs. So you absolutely know the body is going to education and science. um but then that kind of opens the pandora's box of for-profit and non-profit body donation which completely out of the realm of my expertise uh but with that i always jason for sure yeah i always advocate uh that uh, an individual finds a university program that they that they know about that can you know have their last rights done for them but that's that's something that i i don't plan to add into the market i think that there's too many skeletons that exist people don't know what to do with them I think we have enough bones that can last the U.S. for the next hundred years. Um, Mm -hmm. They're just all in Mm -hmm. people's attics. And we want to find a real solution of what to do with them.
1: (laughs) I want to not go in those attics. (laughs) Where are all those attics?
0: It seems so bizarre to think that these specimens are lying around. But in one of the interviews that was done with you, it follows you when you drive up to this house, I think in upstate New York, and you go to this family who has this medical specimen and it's like, it's inherited and it's, these are real people. I mean, this is a thing.
2: Yeah. I mean, that was, that was such a shame. We, um, we had filmed for six hours and that ended up being around a minute, introduction to the clip, but it was it was truly enlightening. That was the first real time that um, we had been able to film a live interaction with the client, you know, complete fly on the wall. Mm -hmm. Didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know what I was going to walk into. It was just a full exchange. And it went so well. And that's what people don't realize is these aren't weird creepy people sitting in their basement. These are just regular Americans that are inheriting bones um, from relatives or distant relatives and they just don't know what to do with it. Another example, we drove to Philly, uh, my partner and I, and the person had purchased a house and there was only one thing left in the attic and that was a full skeleton. And the previous owner of the house was actually a prop master. So it's speculated that they had purchased the skeleton to use in a movie and just left it behind. <sighs> to oh, scare wow. the shit out of the next
1: person to go in the attic.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, you want to know an actual fun fact that we haven't even touched on yet is not only the, the readability of these pieces and how many existed, but actually how commercially viable they were. It Mm. used to be cheaper to buy a real human skeleton than it was to buy a plastic cast. If you actually look at it, I think I believe that the original Pirates of the Caribbean used to use real human remains. Um, I've heard that. Yeah. I thought it was an fact, urban legend. Fact check me. Fact check me on that. You know, I don't, <laughs> don't want to spew misinformation into the world, but let me know if this is true after. But I, I heard that. Okay. But it makes it makes complete sense. Adjusted for inflation, you could buy a skull today if the prices hadn't changed for $150. So the two That's reasons, it. yeah, the two reasons why people study bones, I, it's for any of the listeners at home that don't know why people always go like, why can't we just use a plastic skeleton? Right. And the two main reasons is in um in around the 19th century, billiard balls used to be made out of ivory, which is mm. essentially bone. And when you'd hit it in a very specific way, it would shatter and mm. explode. So there was a competition created saying who can make a material that could substitute ivory? What was created as a process? Plastic. So actually, if you look at it from a materiality standpoint, plastic was made to be the furthest thing away from bone as possible historically. So when people say, why can't we just use plastic skulls? It's really because of this. This history. This is where the industrial design degree comes in handy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and also, adding
1: next... to the waste problem on this planet, we don't need don't, more plastic skulls.
2: Don't get right. me started. Right? How abstract
1: that
0: the, the fake the fake skeletons will probably outlive the real skeletons. Yeah. Like the one I of definitely
1: us. had outside my house on Halloween. Yeah, for sure.
2: <laughs> and I'm part the of the next problem. reason is because of anatomical variation. So everyone is different, we're all unique, we all have different body types and that's to be accepted and appreciated. But that really also shows in our skeletal system. So I had a professor for forensic anthropology that I had taken some courses with. He had studied 15,000 skulls. He had looked at the ossicles in the ear and he said, the human skull is more unique than a fingerprint. Mm. You can look at the skull of two identical twins and they are still noticeable differences. Hmm. So everyone is different. We have two skeletons in the showroom. They're both presumed female. They're both presumed Caucasian, and they're both presumed to be from 1940. Um, One is over six foot. The other is 5'2". Their skeletal structures look extremely different. If you had only studied one skeleton your entire career, you'd have an inadequate understanding of human anatomy. This is why having such a large collection is important. If you were a professor or a med student studying the vertebral column at a truly academic high level, you cannot get by on one skull. It's not enough. No, no. And another example, I was talking to a uh, mentor of mine who has studied forensic anthropology and osteology. And I said, hey, does this look weird to you? And they said, oh, that's actually a a tumor or an abnormality where the pituitary gland is. That's not supposed to be there. And That's super rare. A medical student would have missed that. Like, how did you find it? And I had just seen so many human skulls over my career. It just didn't look right. It didn't look wow. like what it should look like there. So, you know, that, that leads me to when I was taking these courses, it was a combination of regular individuals like me undergraduates, master's degree, PhDs that were just doing it, uh, just for fun. Yeah. And they did a quiz and who got it right for the first question. I actually got a 3d printed cast of the professor's skull. It was me Yay! And they, because <laughs> they, they put their hands in a box and they described the bone based on the descriptions I was able to tell what it was. And it's because up to this point I had, it was a clavicle and I had held so many clavicles I could instantly tell. And I was in a room full of med students, and I got first, um, not, not as an ego thing, but just to really demonstrate uh, the importance of handling and studying. hands-on, yeah. yeah. And how yeah. rare
0: it is for students to get their hands on these things.
2: I had had a forensic anthropologist come to the showroom, and they got very emotional. Uh, they said, I had gone to a very small university, and the only medical collection I could study was four hours away. And then he said, I I saw this in my textbook. I know what this condition is. This is my first time seeing it in real life. I'd only seen pictures of it online. And this is a person that had a four-year degree and had never touched a real human bone, you know, and that happens, unfortunately enough. So I always advocate for anyone that wants to learn to reach out to us. We give free photos online. We uh, have free tours available in the showroom. But um, it's a it's a real problem, you know. Yeah. I'm not a practicing academic that can benefit from it, but there are researchers and anthropologists, forensic anthropologists, osteologists that can. So that's why we really try to make our collection available to the public.
1: Wow. It's so amazing. So you described your space fantastically. I mean, it really it really does have this multi purpose, you know, it's it's a museum in in what most museums should be is that it's educate it's ed- an educational purpose. So as it is right now, it's a essentially a studio space in Bushwick. What is your long-term vision for John's Bones? What do you where do you see this going? Are you looking for a larger space potentially in the future? Or I guess if you're trying to get rid of more of these, well, you, are you looking you know, to downsize?
2: If, uh, if I won that Powerball $1.9 billion lottery, or what, what was it, $1.1 billion, Oh, it was so um, many
1: monies. I was so sad. I did not win.
2: No. My... My goal is to have eventually a ground level brick and mortar museum where people can come to learn uh, for free or Mm -hmm. by ticket sales. My degree is traditionally in product design. So we just unveiled a series of wearable jewelry that people can buy. That's bone themed. It's all uh, finished locally in Brooklyn, casted in precious metals. And it's a big project that I'm proud of in collaboration with Dylan Reed jewelry. So the goal for the business is to implement products Mm. that can substitute um, the monetary aspects of the business. So we don't have to necessarily sell bones um, to sustain ourselves. And then we can move towards um, doing more public service and more public events where members of the general public can learn in a museum setting. So similar to, let's say, the Noguchi Museum, you have their museum where they have the historical aspect of it, and then they have their commercial retail locations. Similarly, I would love to adapt John's Bones to have our commercial retail side that sells non-bones, and then move towards more of a museum context where people can learn for free, where if we can get to a good place, we could just donate the pieces or just give the pieces away to universities or an endowment that needs it.
0: That's one of the vision. Yeah.
2: you know. I feel like uh, people always miscategorize, you know, the aspects of the business online. If I wanted to make money, there are a million easier ways to do it in New York City than selling (laughs) people's (laughs) heads, you know? So I really did this because it's a passion of mine. I'm a tree and I fall the way I lean. This is what I believe in. You know, this is the hill I'm going to die on. It's what I believe in. (laughs) I think it's a problem and it needs to be addressed.
1: Well,
0: I think you're doing it. I'm. You're I'm. I'm spreading I the word.
1: Really, yeah. truly. I mean, what a uh, a Herculean yeah. effort on your part. Thank you. And everybody needs to go to see this space. Thank it's you. Absolutely incredible.
0: Yeah. What do you want to tell the folks at home about how to encounter John's Bones IRL?
1: Hmm.
2: Yeah. Right now we're a small space. It's a great stab at you know public accessibility. If people want to join our tour. Within the next month, we're opening a tour section on our website. So we'll have available time slots where people can book in a tour up to six people. From there, we'll let them into the showroom and give them an hour tour that covers um, the history, the ethical implications of the trade, the problems surrounding it, uh, possible solutions that we're working with at the company, uh, a show and tell of all of the rare and interesting pieces in the collection. And then finally, uh, a Q&A at the end for any questions that people might have.
1: It's amazing. And what's your what's your
2: website? Johnsbones.com. No H. J-O-N-S-B-O-N-E-S.com.
1: And if you also want to share your uh, your social media with everybody, because uh, this this guy has got an awesome TikTok that people really need to, if you're not on this, you need to be on it because it's so good.
2: <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, We're, we're John's bones on all social media.
0: Easy enough.
1: Yeah. This is
0: such a fascinating subject. And I was, I think something that was I keep hitting on is this idea of the contextuality of the objects
2: mm-hmm. and
0: how you did a really nice job of just sort of, as you said, peeling back the onion in terms of, we think, we tend to think so simplistically about donating one's body to science. And it's a, it's a trope that just sort of is permeating our culture, but few of us I would argue are aware of what that involves and the history of what's behind that and what happens to these things when their utility as a product that's been washed of its human identity, what happens to it? You know, it's a completely new idea and how across cultures, the way we use bones and revere bones or don't says a lot about our spiritual health perhaps, but also our anatomical knowledge and medical knowledge and all that we know in medical science seems to be we're we're, we're still missing a lot in the story and that we're <laughs> yeah, not, we haven't unlocked all that bones have to tell us because yeah. we're too busy putting them in the ground. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I think you also know. with, with, you know, donations to science, there's such a f- focus on organs Mm -hmm. um Mm. because they have an immediate function that they can Mm. serve you know um and the dissection of that and looking at something that's cancered versus average and so i it's also i I think they steal a lot of the limelight
2: (laughs) it's also the the conversation of public paradigm For instance, organ donation has been readily accepted by our community. Um, Most people are organ donors on their card. I am, But then, um, you know, talking about skeleton donation, the University of Tennessee has um, their cadaver program, I believe, where I think it's in the body farm in Tennessee where people study the stages of decomposition and that isn't as well known as other, you know, other avenues, so... Uh, raising awareness about different options is, is important.
0: Well, this has been such a wild ride. Thank (laughs) you so much for taking us through this virtual exploration of John's bones. Um, Thank you. People know where to find you. Um, Thank you, John Ferry, for being a guest on our podcast. Katie, do you want to close us out?
1: Sure. Yeah. It's been an (laughs) absolute pleasure. I've learned so much from you and I cannot wait to learn more, uh, continuing to follow you on social media. Uh, To all of our more buddies out there, please, please remember to rate and subscribe and review the Morbid Museum podcast. We love hearing from you. Also, feel free to drop us a line at themorbidmuseum at gmail.com. We love getting your messages. We're pretty good about getting back to everyone who reaches out to us because we just love y'all so darn much. Follow us on all the socials, Instagram and TikTok at the Morbid Museum. And hopefully we'll see you again for our next gallery talk inside the Morbid Museum. Bye-bye. Bye.